There we go. Hallelujah. I bet you guys couldn't have guessed that we're going to continue on in the study of the Gospel of John this morning. Shocked and amazed. Hallelujah. So we're going to go ahead and, and begin chapter 5. Last week we just kind of wrapped up the, uh, the story of the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And, and after this happens, Jesus is now going to head back up to Jerusalem. This is the second, I believe, the second recorded trip into to Jerusalem, Judea, that, that John records. And uh, so far, we've seen two kind of big signs, big miracles that Jesus has done, but they've all been kind of private. They've been kind of low-key, kind of behind the scenes. Now, it's true that he, when he was baptizing tons of people, the officials started noticing, saying, hey, wait, he's baptizing more than John the Baptist. But you remember, as soon as this happens, Jesus kind of packs up and moves on. He's not trying to, to draw the attention of the officials yet. And you can say, well, Pastor Wendell, I thought those miracles were pretty big that he did. And sure, they were, they were great. They were amazing miracles. And probably more people found out about it than maybe he intended. But you remember the first miracle when he turned water into wine. Who did he do that in front of? His disciples and the servants. That was it, right? Remember, even the master of the ceremony, the guy running the wedding, the servant brought the wine to him. He didn't know that Jesus had done it. Now, we know that at least it leaked out a little bit because the Cana official hears Jesus' back and he heads down, and, and that's where we run into the second major miracle that Jesus does. But even this one, Jesus wasn't even technically there when it happened. It was several miles away in a different town. He just told them to go ahead and, and uh, you know, your, your son as well, and the Cana official left. Now, at that point, really only the Cana official and the servants with the boy knew what happened there. So, so far, what we're dealing with is, is miracles that Jesus are doing. While they're incredible, they're signs of who he is, he still kept them on the down low. He's not really doing this stuff full on in public. But today, things are about to change. And by today, I mean 2,000 years ago when Jesus did this. Jesus is getting ready to head to the pool of Bethesda, and he's going to do a very public miracle in front of a lot of people, and it's going to go ahead uh, and draw the attention of the, the Jews that are there because not only does he do this miracle, but he does it on the Sabbath. And uh, like I said, this miracle is going to be visible. Everyone's going to see it. We know that there's a, we're going to find out and see that there was a crowd at these pools. The Jewish people were, the Jews were out hunting him down, trying to find him. And, and, and the issue really isn't, at least in this instance, so much that he healed somebody, but it's what he told the guy afterwards. He said, go ahead and pick up your pallet and walk. And basically what Jesus was saying is that, listen, I have authority over the Sabbath and I can tell you to do something else on these days. And they understood that when he did this, what he was saying, in addition, right after that, he called God his own father. And the Jews there understood what he was saying. One, he was saying that I have authority over all days, not just the days that aren't the Sabbath. And two, he was God's son. He was making himself equal with God. And so today, at least as far as the timeline in the Gospel of John, we're going to begin to see where the Jews really start developing that hatred for Jesus, and it's actually when they begin to start planning how they're going to kill him. So you guys ready? Only one person's ready. I should just pack it up and go home, I guess. Hallelujah. Are you guys ready? All right. Chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John, uh, John 
all the J names in this book that I got to keep track of. Pray for me. There's so many J names. Some of them are even the same. Anyway, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. And John writes this down, and it seems kind of interesting. He's kind of just telling us why Jesus is going to Jerusalem, kind of giving a reason for his trip. Now, there are three major feasts that each Jew must attend every year. And you can read these all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. It says, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose, and at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So there's three feasts that every Jew has to attend. Unleavened bread, Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. Um, and it's likely that one of these feasts was going on. That's why Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Um, Jesus was a Jew, and he did fulfill the law as, as he lived as a human on this earth. He did all of those things. So he's probably heading up to make it to one of these, these feasts. Um, some say that it was actually Passover he was going to attend. And that's interesting because if it was Passover, it turns out that Jesus' ministry was actually a little longer than three years if this was also a Passover that he attended. But as I was studying this, most of the commentaries that I read, um, and I think I, I, I agree with them, mention, I think, with what makes the most sense to me. It's oftentimes, when we read the Scripture, sometimes we try to make too much of what's there. And we begin to try to think of what's happening, what's going on, and the reality is, is that we need to remember that almost always the simplest solution, the simplest reason, is the correct reason. When you have to jump through hoops to, to, to give a reason for why something is there, then it's more often that if there's a solution that doesn't require all that gyration, that that's the solution that it is. You see, instead of having a big grand reason about the feast that Jesus is attending and all this stuff, John is probably just trying to tell us that he's going there. Because his readers might have said, wait a minute, Jesus was just in, in, in Galilee. He was just over there. Why is he going to Jerusalem? Why did he make that, that distance? John nips it in the butt and says, there is a feast he was going to. That's really probably all this is dealing with, even though if you want to read commentaries, there's all kinds of stuff made about this feast Jesus is going to. And the truth is, is we don't even know if it's one of those big three feasts. It could have been some other feast. For all I know, it was just a bring and share after synagogue one, one Saturday, and there was somebody there like Norma who makes amazing food, and Jesus just wanted to grab some. It doesn't really say what's going on there. The, there's the thing. The feast isn't important to this story. What Jesus does when he gets there is what's important. So as we go on to verse 2 through 5, it says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So Jesus makes his way to this area. In Jerusalem, it's actually just north of the temple. It's by the Sheep Gate. There's this pool there that's called Bethesda. And if you visit Jerusalem today, you can visit St. Anne's Church, and they'll actually show you this massive excavation where they have figured out, where they've discovered where these pools 
were located. This ancient pool of Bethesda, it's not just something in a storybook. This was a real place. And some say that this word Bethesda, it means house of mercy or house of grace or another translation, I think, well, maybe it means a place uh, of two outpourings, which actually kind of makes sense because when they did the excavation, they find out it's actually not one pool, it's two pools side by side that is this uh, pool of Bethesda. But these, these excavations give evidence to the reality that the scriptures are true, that the, the scripture, the New Testament, is a historical document. This isn't some fairy tale. This isn't something that's made up. We have found the pools that were talked about, and it gives evidence that what we're reading today is true. Amen? Don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible is inaccurate. Don't ever let anybody tell you that it's just a fairy tale with made-up stories. Because the reality is, for people to say that, there's, there's only two options. They're either ignorant, because they've not studied and realized that all this stuff is documented. I mean, there, uh, the historical um, declarations that are made in the New Testament, we keep finding more and more and more evidence. And no, everything that was written in there was true. And actually, we're starting to learn, uh, from, and most secular or, or religious scholars all agree that the New Testament is one of the most accurate historical documents of this time period, talking about what is going on, what is happening. So they're either ignorant or they're in denial. So don't ever let anybody tell you that, that what we believe is just myth and fairy tale because at least the, the historical stuff we found evidence for, it's grounded in reality, amen? So while these pools were still functional, at the time, the lame, the blind, the paralyzed, they would all gather and sit around this pool. And this is kind of a thing that... that when you see it all together, and if you've ever been in a place where this stuff comes together, you really begin to see that all of these things, sickness, uh, disease, blindness, lameness, paralysis, and any other thing that causes the human body to work in a way that it wasn't intended are ultimately caused as a result of sin. All of this stuff shows up after the fall. Before the fall, there was no sickness or disease. So when I say it's a result of sin, I don't mean individual sin. I mean as a result of the fall, when basically the world was broken. And the healing of these things, of all this stuff, was actually what was prophesied to be done by the Messiah. In Isaiah 35, 3-6, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense, recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement of the, that brought us peace, and with his wounds... And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus came to heal the sick, to heal physical ailments. Some people will say, you know, in Isaiah 53, 5, it's talking about national or spiritual healing, which I agree it is. But it's also talking about physical healing because that's what the apostles said. I think it's in, in, in Mark 17 or Matthew 17. I have to look it up. But, but Jesus goes and heals a multitude, and it says, and this was done to fulfill that, they were, that, that uh, uh, he was healed for our transgressions. 
or by his wounds we are healed. It was there to, to, to fulfill that prophecy. So if the apostles can go ahead and agree that that is a, a physical healing, I think we can as well. So Jesus was sent to heal these things. And now we have Jesus showing up to where all these things are, and he's about to do a miracle, and he's about to fulfill prophecy. He's about to demonstrate who he is. And I wonder why didn't the Jews and the religious leaders of that day, why didn't they recognize that their Savior was here? Why didn't they recognize that he was fulfilling the very prophecies that they were watching for and waiting for to happen? They actually were waiting for their Messiah. They studied this stuff. How did they not know? How did they not notice that it was him? But Jesus shows up and he's about to fulfill prophecy. And in particular, we find the one who is about to receive a miracle. And it's this guy here. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time. Now, for the detail-oriented among us, you might have noticed that something seems to be missing from this passage. I said I'm reading from John 5, 2 through 5, but we go from verse 3 all the way to verse 5. There is no verse 4. In the ESV version of the Bible, verse 4 is actually omitted from the text. They don't include it in the translation. If you read, there's a little footnote there, and this is what it says. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed in whatever disease that he had. Now, if you have a version of the Bible that actually has chapter or verse um, uh, 4 in there, I think it's like the end of cha- verse 3 and in in verse 4, if you have that in your Bible you will also have a little footnote that says these, these verses are not included in the earliest manuscripts or something to that effect. And the reason I want to discuss this is because um, in this particular case, one, I agree with the removal of this verse. And I'll explain why in a second. But two, it, the verse is still important because it gives reason for why all these people were gathered around this pool. And what I mean about this, and, or the reasons that, 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 I, that I think that this should be removed, but it's still kind of important to understand what was happening, is one, like I said, the earliest manuscripts didn't include um, the, this scripture. This was added at a later time to, to manuscripts that they found later. The original likely didn't have this passage in it. It was added afterwards. But second, and I think probably most important, is that it's inconsistent with the rest of Scriptures. And what I mean by that is, is it talks about the working of an angel. And what does it say the angel do? When certain season comes down, swirls up the water, if you get into the water after, um, after the water is swirled or stirred up, then you could be healed. But the reason I think that this is, is inconsistent is because when you read about an angel's work on earth anywhere else in Scripture you really only see two things. Angels come to be messengers or they come to be soldiers, which is essentially just a messenger that they're using the, their sword to you know, give the message. <laughs> but that's really all you see angels doing that I can recall. Maybe if, I, I don't remember everything. I don't know everything. But as far as I can recall, that's what you see angels doing. They give messages or they come and fight for the Lord. Those are the two things. This, this idea of an angel coming down every and then to stir up, wa- stir up uh, water, uh, 
is, is, was, was probably added later to give a Christian reason why things were going on there. Because the reality is, that, but we do need to understand the water was stirred because something was making the water stir. And there's a lot of things that can make water stir, particularly in natural pools and springs. You can have gas being released. All kinds of things can cause this. Um, and it doesn't have to be an angel doing it. But it gives a reason why the people are gathering around this pool because they thought that whenever this happened, something magical would happen. We're dealing with a lot of superstition with what's going on with the people who are there. But that's why they're all gathered around this pool because of this superstition. Now, the reason why I wanted to point this out, because you'll find in, uh, in other areas in your scripture, this isn't the only um, piece of scripture that we have that is not included in the earliest manuscripts. There are some, um, and the ESV actually uh, excludes a lot of them, but there are some that weren't included in the, in the original manuscripts that I am actually perfectly okay with keeping as part of a Bible, and let me explain why. Because they're consistent with the rest of Scripture. Um, a couple that come to mind are the story of the woman caught in adultery. This is the beginning of John 8. We'll actually talk about this one later. The ESV does keep that in. Um, but you'll look, there's a little footnote that says, this is not in the earliest manuscripts. But what Jesus does, how he behaves, is completely consistent with how he behaves in the rest of Scripture. Um, another one, verse 37 in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. This is one the ESV actually removes and I think should be kept in. <laughs> and it says, um, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, asked uh, Philip, he says, what must I do to be saved? He said, look, there's water. What must I do to be saved? And he said, you must only believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That part was removed in the ESV and it's not included in some of the earliest gospels, but it's very consistent with the message of the gospel. So I don't have a problem with that one being in there. Um, another one, pretty much the entire end of the Gospel of Mark, <laughs> the whole last chapter and a little bit uh, of, the, of the chapter before it will have big footnotes that says this wasn't included in the earliest, um, the earliest manuscripts, but it's completely consistent with the other Gospels, so I don't really have a problem. I just wanted to explain that to you, um, why sometimes you see stuff in there, why sometimes you don't, why stuff is missing, but the reality is, is that um, I think it's important we know that the water was being stirred because that's why people were there. There was superstition around this place that people thought that they could healed, but I don't personally believe that it was an angel doing it because, like I said, it was added later in two. It's just not consistent with what we see angels doing in the, in the Scripture. That make sense? I'm glad it does. Hallelujah. If we continue on now to verse 6, through nine, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. See, that's the reason why he was there. He was waiting for the water to be stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And now that day was the Sabbath. Now Jesus takes notice of this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. And it's interesting that John places so much emphasis on, on that. You know, he, he could have just said Jesus found the, this invalid there, but no, he says Jesus found this man that's been an invalid for 38 years. 
And John is known, when he, in, in the gospel, he's known for being, um, considering thematic messaging to be very important in his gospel. You remember we talked about in the beginning of this, John is more apt to maybe be a little squirrely with the timeline in order to fit his, his thematic message, whereas the other synoptic gospels, they're very um, historical, where John is concerned with theology. So one of the things here is he, he talks about this, 38, uh, this guy being an invalid for 38 years, and it's likely that he's actually telling us this because he's using him as an illustration of Israel. Now Israel was wandering in the desert for 38 years. So wait a minute, Pastor Wayne, it says 40 years. Yes, they, were in, they, they left Egypt into the promised land. It was 40 years, but they were only wandering for 38 years. In Deuteronomy 2, 13 through 15, it says, Now rise up and go over to the brook Zered. So he went over to the brook Zered, and the time from leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation that is the men of war had perished from the camp, as the Lord has sworn to them. So you remember that when this happened, they had been out a couple years before they ticked off God, and he said, you know, you're not going to enter the promised land, before their, their unbelief had reached a point where God says, all right, you're going to wander for a while. So they wandered for 38 years. And spiritually speaking, in this point in time where, where John is ministering to his people, Israel's not really in a, a great place right now. And they're waiting desperately for something to happen. They're waiting desperately for their Savior. They, they are under Roman rule. Things aren't going well. So John is likely using this man as an illustration of Israel. And it's unfortunately that most of the Jewish people missed what was happening right under their noses. And Jesus singles out this man and he says, hey, do you want to be healed? How many of you guys think this is a silly question? I'll be, in some ways I kind of do. Like, if I walked up to a person that was the invalid for 30 years, I probably wouldn't have to. I would think that I wouldn't need to ask them. I would assume the answer is yes, that we don't really need to ask this. I mean, of course they want to be healed, right? I mean, he's been waiting by this pool 38 years, hoping somebody would push him into it while it was stirred up so he could get it healed. So apparently he wants to be healed. Why would we ask this question? But just like today, Jesus is not forcing himself into anybody's life. He's actually standing at the door knocking waiting for people to answer. So Jesus doesn't just walk up and do it. He goes ahead and he asks them, do you want to be healed? But instead of answering the question, it almost seems like he begins to make excuses. You're right, sir, but there's no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. There's no one here to help me. And I wonder, as I'm reading this, was he offended by this question? Did he interpret what Jesus said as, you've been here for 38 years, do you even want to be healed? Maybe he did. Maybe that's the way he interpreted it. So he starts to make excuses. I would think in 38 years, he could have gotten somebody to get him over to the pool when it was stirred up. I mean, I can't imagine that nobody in those days had compassion. You know, and, and the, the water stirs up and they think they're going to get healed and, and all the, the, the people make a mad dash for it. I can't imagine after 38 years, somebody said, you know what, this guy's been waiting a long time. The next time it happens, let's make sure he gets taken care of. But no, for 38 years, I, I would think he could get help, but apparently not. Maybe he had gotten used to being in his condition. 
that's something to consider. He had grown accustomed to people taking care of him. I mean, he's not dead, so for 38 years, somebody's been bringing him food. Somebody's been taking care of him. He's been, uh, he's been uh, taken, taken care of. I've heard stories of, of beggars in uh, some, some other countries, and I, I can't remember exactly which one it is, so I won't say a country because I don't want to, to mistakenly say something that's not true. But I do remember the story where these beggars would go and they would sit on the steps and they would keep their wounds fresh. Instead of letting their wounds heal, they'd have massive you know, broken legs or gashes. They wouldn't let them heal because they recognized that when tourists came through and Americans came through, if they were hurt, they were given more money. So instead of taking that money and getting the care that they need, they would keep their wounds fresh so that they could continue to receive more money. Is that what's going on here? I mean, because if he's not an invalid anymore, do you think people are still going to be offering him stuff to take care of him? Or maybe this wasn't an indication of a lack of desire, but it was just a genuine uh, uh, realization that he didn't have, he had a lack of means. You know, I don't know. Quit asking me all these questions. You guys have the same Bible I have. I don't know the answers to all these things. I'm just thinking through some possibilities. But what is clear is he's on board with the, the superstition or the magic of these pools, right? He thinks he's got to wait till the water stirs before he gets in them. He thought, in order to be healed, I have to get in the pool first before everybody else. But then Jesus does something that may have shocked this guy. Jesus demonstrates that he's not constrained by superstition or magic. Jesus is not constrained by bubbling water. Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk. Jesus has authority over all of it. Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Jesus has authority over men. Jesus has authority over all creation. And he says, pick up your bed and walk. And what does it say? At once, the man was healed. Immediately, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. And this is the Sabbath. You see, when God speaks, his words have power. When God speaks, what he says happens. When we are obedient to his word, and when we listen to his word, his word will work in and through our lives. So if you want to see God work in your life, believe him and be obedient to his word. Let his work accomplish inside, or his word accomplish inside of you what he intends it to accomplish. Amen? So after this man, he gets healed. In verse 10, it says that the Jews came up to him and said, to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered, then the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So it's the Sabbath. The guy gets healed, supernaturally, miraculously healed. He gets up, carries his pallet. And what is everybody concerned about? That he's carrying his mat. Now, the man just did what Jesus told him to do. Right? He, he picked up and walked picked up his mat, walked away, and this, is a, this really is, I don't think you guys truly understand how amazing this story is. Do you know what happens to your body when you're an invalid for 38 years? Yeah, this isn't a small thing what Jesus did, did, just did. This healing demonstrates the supernatural power of God. This wasn't like he just fell and hurt himself and he got up and, and the boo-boo went away. 
No, this is a massive major healing. Atrophied muscles were not only restored, but they were functioning properly too. So he had atrophied muscles that have now been fully restored so he can get up. And not only that, he knows how to use them. He hadn't walked in 38 years. I imagine he forgot how to walk. No big deal. Jesus says, get up and walk. He picked it up and walked. This is a miracle that you can't even imagine. And, and if you want to understand a little bit about this, any of you got anybody uh, uh, ever work out or used to work out? You ever notice that when you first start lifting, when you first start after you haven't done it in a while, like, man, you just get stronger fast. Like all of a sudden, like it's like every time you lift, you can lift a little bit more weight. You're not actually growing new muscle in those times. What's happening is, is that you're using your muscle that's there, but your, your body is actually learning how to recruit muscle fibers that weren't there before. You're getting neural pathways created so that you can recruit the muscle fibers. That's why that if you used to work out a lot and then you quit working out for a couple years, you can go back and you can gain most of that strength back within a, within a, a few weeks, sometimes a, less than a month, because the muscle is still there. You just got to train your body again how to start using that muscle. And then you look at people that go through physical therapy. Maybe something's happened. Their leg's been in a cast and, and the muscle is atrophied. Then they go through physical therapy. And in this case, they're doing two things. One, they're re-remembering how to recruit all those muscles. And they're also growing new muscle. And this takes time. This takes months sometimes. And it's usually excruciatingly painful when they're going through physical therapy like this. But this man, no muscle development for 38 years, completely atrophied, probably doesn't remember how to walk if he ever knew how to walk. I mean, if he's 38 years old, then he's never walked. We don't know how old he is. But Jesus says, get up and walk, and the muscles, they're back to normal. They function exactly how they were intended to function, and he gets up and he walks away. I don't think, you know, in our head when we see this stuff, oh, it's just the guy just got up and walked. No, this was a miracle that, that we don't see today, and I wish we would. This was an incredible miracle. And it's really, we read it earlier, but in, in, in Isaiah 35, 6, Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And right now, he's publicly fulfilling prophecy. He's in front of tons of people. There's a crowd there. And he publicly fulfills this messianic prophecy in front of them. And then this man, just as he is leaving, he gets stopped by the Jews. And here's the problem. Mosaic law required rest on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath. But over time, the religious authorities begin to add more rules and more constraints and more things you could or couldn't do. And, and, and actually today, if you look at some of the things that they do to keep the Sabbath, it's kind of humorous because they've come up with some really weird tricks to get around it. But, but it's because they've added all these rules and, and laws additional to what Moses, uh, Mosaic Law had said, which was rest on the seventh day. They've added all these rules and regulations. So now the simple act of carrying his mat from a public place to a private place is now enough to get him stoned. This is an act worthy of death because he is working on the Sabbath because he picked up a mat. And it's likely the man realizes what danger he's in. It's likely he understands when the Jews come after him and say, hey, wait a minute, it's the Sabbath. I, had a little, I bet he had a little bit of a pucker moment where he's going, uh-oh, what's going to happen? But to be honest, I think if I was just super, supernaturally healed, 
I might understand that the person who did it, because like I said, this isn't a small healing, I might understand the person who did this had a little bit of authority. I mean, if the guy can completely restore me and he told me to walk on the Sabbath, I'm walking on the Sabbath. Apparently this guy's got some authority over this day. But notice how different Jesus treated this man and the other Jewish people did. Jesus treated him with compassion. Jesus said, do you want to get healed? Jesus touched his life in a way that he could never imagine. Jesus restored his ability to walk. And not just that. You, we think about this, oh, he's able to walk now. No, he just restored this man's ability to function in society again. He can have dignity again. He could probably start a family now. I mean, this, Jesus just rocked this guy's world. That's the kind of miracle that happened. Now, if you knew somebody that that happened to, how would you react? I would be so excited. I would be ecstatic. I would be man. I would, first, I'd want to know how it happened because I, you know, I want to. I want some of that. I want to get close to that. How do I mean? This is amazing. You know, I want to learn more about this. is incredible. I would be so excited and happy for that person, looking for how it happened. I wouldn't start pointing out their flaws. They had to have known this guy, right? I mean, they're right there by the pool. They've seen this guy. He's been there for 38 years. And their first thought is like, why not? Wow, how did this amazing thing happen? It's, hey, what are you doing carrying your, your mat on the Sabbath? What a difference in reaction between the Jewish people and Jesus. But then again, I say these things but if I'm honest, I look back in my own life and I see ways that I've reacted the same way. You ever had somebody get a promotion above you and you get upset because you thought it should have been you? When really you should be rejoicing? Especially if you know them, you're a friend. It's kind of the same thing here. Instead of rejoicing, they're pointing out flaws. The truth is, we do it too. I think that's one of the things we have to recognize when we read the Scripture is that we've got to be real careful because the truth is, if we're honest, we do a lot of the same things the Jewish people are constantly being berated by, by Jesus and the apostles and all of them. And that's what we're to learn from to make sure that we're not doing that. So next time someone at your work is, is promoted, rejoice with them. If, you're, if you've been trying to have a baby and somebody at your work gets pregnant, don't be, don't be jealous, don't be angry that they got one and you didn't because you've been trying. Rejoice with them. Because we can really fall into these same traps. Amen. So then in verses 12 through 13, it says, They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now they've forgotten all about the man who was carrying his mat. Now they're interested in the man who told someone to violate their rules and traditions. See, they're not really upset at the healing. They're upset that Jesus told him to pick up his mat and walk. How dare he? Because they recognize the thing. They recognize that Jesus was stepping on what they thought was their realm, their territory. But at this point, the guy didn't even know who Jesus was, never got his name. You remember, he referred to him as sir. Didn't know where he went. He gets healed. Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. He turns tail, starts walking away. Jesus disappears into the crowd. He slinks away, and they look back. There's just a huge crowd there. Jesus is nowhere to be found. But afterwards, Jesus goes, and he finds that man. It says, uh, verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. 
Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad this is where he found the man. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I'm hoping that this man had a miracle happen to him and his first stop was the temple to begin to worship God. You see, our first response when God does a miracle in our life should be to worship. It should be to give thanks, give glory to the one who just did that in our life. And for the Jews, they had to go to the temple to do this. For us, we can do this anywhere. Matter of fact, Jesus was just making a point last chapter that, you know, there's a time coming and now is a time where you just worship in spirit and truth. It's about how you worship, not where you worship. So if God does a miracle in your life, just begin to give him glory. That should be the first words out of your mouth. Give him thanks. And then Jesus tells him to sin no more so that something worse would not happen to him. So now the question is, what does this mean? Does this mean the man was sick because he was somehow living in sin? Was it punishment? Was that why he was, he was an invalid? And Jesus is saying, hey, I just healed you. Sin no more so you know, something worse doesn't happen. And I don't think that's the case of what's going on here. Now, I, one, I, I believe it's true. There are consequences for sin. Right? You murder somebody, you can be completely forgiven in Christ. You still might spend the rest of your life in prison. There are still consequences for your sin. If you live a sexually sinful lifestyle, oftentimes the, the consequence of that is contracting diseases. You know, and, and these are the consequence of the lifestyle. You see, I don't personally believe that that stuff happens as some sort of punishment, my God, for the sins that they're doing. Because Jesus took care of sin. While we were yet sinners, all of us were sinners, Jesus came and died for sin. As far as God is concerned, sin has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus became sin, and then he died. That means sin died as far as God is concerned. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean that that means that, that when we sin, he doesn't see it. No sin is still wrong. What I'm saying is, is the, the payment for sin has been dealt with. And the only thing that God is concerned with is do you receive Christ or you don't? And when we receive Christ, we're free from sin, so therefore we should be living in holiness. We should be living away from sin. But that's not what I'm talking about today, and I'm going to go off on a tangent. Let's get back to the, what we're talking about. I don't think this man was sick because he had sinned. Because I think the reason why people are sick is because of the result of the fall. That's where sickness entered this world. That's where sin begins to ravage this world. This, this world is broken. And, and, and I don't just think that because it's, it's a good idea. This seems to be um, this idea of, of, of consequences for sin and, and, and does sin cause you to be punished or sick? It's, 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 not, it's dealt with in the Scripture. John 9, 3, it says, Jesus answered him, it was not this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God might be displayed in him. It wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin that he was sick. Um, Luke 13, 1-5, there were some present at the very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate uh, had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders? And all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you all, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, the idea here is it's not our personal sin that causes these things to fall. It's these things that we deal with are the, the, the result of the fall. But, but uh, 
it just says here, I mean, that was actually pretty clear. Were these more worse offenders because of what happened to him? No. The truth is that unless we repent, we're all offenders. And that's what Jesus came to deal with. Jesus went to the cross for pay for all sins, not just the sins of those who would receive him. And I think what Jesus is making the point here is that this guy needs to get his spiritual life in order. Do you want to know what's way worse than being an invalid for 38 years? Spending eternity in hell separate from God. Way worse. Listen, sin no more. Get, get right. Stop your sinning. Stop repenting. Begin to, to get your relationship right. Unfortunately, soon he's going to be able to receive Christ as we transition from the old into the new covenant. He says, sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. And in verse 15 through 16, it says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, this is where I'm like, man, Jesus did just healed you. We just talked about how amazing this miracle was, and now the dude goes and tells the Jews who are looking for him what happened. Because that's the one thing that the Jews didn't have at the time was the identity of Jesus. And I have to be honest, this seems kind of weird to me. because There's a part of me that's like, I can't believe this guy. Why would he do this? I mean, Jesus did everything for him. Why would he throw him under the bus like that? Because if I were this man, I'd be so grateful to Jesus. And I certainly wouldn't be running to tattle on him. Was he so afraid of the Jews that he was willing to do anything to protect himself? Was he trying to find favor with the Jews? Because like we talked about earlier, he's, he's not, now that he's well... He's probably going, his life has to change. He has to look for a job. He has to look for a way to feed himself. He, so is he, is he looking for favor with the Jews? Maybe they'll throw him a few kickbacks if he does this? Or was it simply that uh, uh, he was going about his business and the Jews tracked him down again and asked him these questions and he told them? Once again, I have no idea, guys. You have the same Bible that I do. You're going to have to figure this out. But these are the options, right? The possibilities. I don't know exactly what's going on. But I do know this, once the Jews get their answer, they begin to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He heals a man, and then he tells a man to do something in contrast to Jewish, not God's, Jewish rules and traditions about the Sabbath. Now here's the thing that you have to start asking yourself some questions. Jesus could have came on Friday. Jesus could have showed back up on Sunday. He could have came the day before, the day after, or any time during the week that wasn't the Sabbath. Why did Jesus do this on the Sabbath? And you'll notice this isn't the only time Jesus does stuff on the Sabbath. So why does he do it on the Sabbath? Why? I mean, there could have been a whole lot less turmoil. The Jews wouldn't be out to kill him near as, 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 as badly if he would have just picked a different day. So why did he do this? I believe Jesus is making a statement. He's demonstrating to everybody, including the Jewish people, the Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, that he is Lord even of the Sabbath. His authority isn't just limited to six days. His authority is, ex is extended to every day of the week. So these people, they hunt down Jesus and they begin to, to question him. They begin to ask him what the heck's going on. And this is what it says. Jesus answered them, 
My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, it's bad enough that Jesus is is messing with their Sabbath. But now he's making himself equal with God. You see, the Jewish people didn't see God as their personal father like we have the privilege to do today. We've been grafted into the family. We can say, Abba, Father, which is a demonstration of a familiar relationship. It's a loving relationship. We can say that God is our father. And Jesus, when he says that God is my father, he's doing something completely different. You see, the Jews, they would say our father. It was okay to say our father, collective father. You know, he's the creator, but you couldn't say he is my father. To see God this way, according to them, was sacrilegious. And when Jesus said that he is my father, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was declaring his deity. He was, see, that's the, that's the problem. You know, you can say, but he doesn't say, he doesn't say that, that that's what he's saying. He's just saying that's the son. He's not saying that he's God. But you have to understand that that's exactly what he's saying, is that I am God. It's like, Blake, he's my son. He is just like me. He is a human just like me. He is equal to me as the same human DNA. He is equal to me because he is my son. You have to understand that's what Jesus is saying. When he says God is my father, he is making himself equal to God. Categorically, just like Blake is the same as me, he's categorically saying that I am the same as God. And the Jews knew what he was saying. So you can say, man, you're just reading into it, Pastor Wayne. That's not what he was saying. Well, that's exactly what the Jews thought he was saying. And Jesus wasn't confused. They said, listen, you're calling your God his own father, making himself equal with God, making himself the same as God. Jesus was declaring that he was God. You know, people that always... I always say to me, you know, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say he's God. It says it all over the place. But Jesus declared his deity that he was God. But this is why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. Because unfortunately, they couldn't see the truth right in front of their eyes. Amen? Amen. We'll go ahead and wrap it up there today. Pastor Joseph, next week, will go ahead and continue on, uh, starting with verse 19. But let's go ahead and bow our head as we pray.